Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Chinese Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Suvi Rautio, and I'm one of the hosts of the channel. On the podcast today, we have Koville Maiskins, Maiskins, who is Assistant Professor in the National Security Affairs Department at the Naval Postgraduate School. Koville Maiskins is here to talk about his new book, Mao's Third Front, The Militarization of Cold War China, published in 2020 by Cambridge University Press. Koval Maiskin's book explores what was perhaps one of the biggest public projects in Maoist China, the construction of an enormous, top-secret, military-industrial-based area in the Inland Mountains, which was built in preparation for war against the United States and the Soviet Union. This military-industrial base was named the Third Front. The Third Front received more government investment than any other development initiative of the Maoist era. And yet, this huge industrial war machine, which was the mobilization of 15 million people, was not officially acknowledged for over a decade and a half. Drawing on a rich collection of archival documents, memoirs, and oral interviews, Mao's Third Front explains how the lives of millions merged with geopolitics and local change, forcing the reader to rethink their understanding of contemporary Chinese history. The chapters that form the body of the book are incredibly detailed and engaging to bring forth the first written history of the Third Front campaign. We will be discussing these chapters in more detail with Kovel, who we have the pleasure of joining us on the show today. Kovel, welcome to the podcast. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. So I'd like to begin our discussion to um, ask you a bit about your background. Um, How did you grow to be interested in Chinese history or more particular Chinese military history? So I came to Chinese history somewhat by accident. So I initially was going to be studying Taiwan. Uh, I thought about uh, somebody suggested that I study Cold War Taiwan. Uh, My wife's Taiwanese. So I thought of doing some sort of project that was about Cold War Taiwan. Then eventually I decided I didn't want to study Taiwan because with Taiwan, there was one major issue that everybody focused on, which was, is it a country or not? And I didn't want that to be the issue that I dealt with for the next decade or two of my life. And so I decided to switch to China. How I came to my actual project for the book was really an accident. What happened is I had had my oral exams. I still didn't have a a dissertation topic. And my dissertation committee made it clear to me that I needed a dissertation topic very quickly. So what I did is I literally went and got uh, John Fairbank and Merle Goldman's uh, textbook, China, A New History, And I started flipping through it and I needed to find a topic that was going to be about China. I needed during the Cold War is what I wanted. Um, I knew I wanted the the, the Maoist period. And then I also knew that it would be good if I could find something in Southwest China, most likely Sichuan, because my main advisor, uh, Jakob Eifert, uh, my main China advisor, Jakob Eifert, his first book was about Sichuan. So what I did is I was just looking through the book. And I saw this paragraph or two that talks about the Third Front. 
and it sounded like it was something big, sounded like it was something important, and it didn't really sound like there was much research about it. So that seemed like, okay, this is a good dissertation topic because it's something big and important, and uh, there's not much research about it. Later on, I realized that it was kind of a dumb idea, just to be honest, of, of choosing the topic because it was so big. It, it was so big, which made it very unwieldy and to, to try to figure out how to scope things and make it all fit together. Uh, I, I realized at one point saying that I studied the third front was like saying I studied the cultural revolution. Like if you had a student come to you and say, I want to study the cultural revolution, they would say, no, they would, they would say, no, you should study the cultural revolution in Beijing for these specific years. That's, that's a manageable project. Saying I wanted to study the third front was like saying I wanted to study the Chinese economy for 20 years, which is it's, it's just too big of a project. In the end, I was able to find out a way to scope the thing, um, but it was it was it was a painful process to get there. Um, yeah, you definitely do scope the thing in your book itself. Um, like I mentioned, I really enjoyed reading it, even though I'm not a historian myself. I'm an anthropologist, and yet um, you were really able to um, draw on this massive um, project and and this massive campaign and and um, delve into some fantastic detail of of how it was constructed and the people involved and the kind of geo, geopolitical framework. Um, but could you tell our listeners um, a bit more about what exactly was the Third Front? Um, can you give our listeners a bit of a brief introduction about what and where did the project take place and when? So the Third Front was a campaign that lasted from 1964 to 1968. Uh, it's really in central China. Sometimes in books, they'll say it's in Western China, but it's really, if you take off Xinjiang and Tibet, which is really Western China, it's not that area. It's the area sort of in between Xinhai going all the way to uh, sort of the central of, of Hubei and then upwards towards towards Beijing and then south towards, towards Guangdong. Uh, what really is the dividing line here is the Beijing-Guangzhou Railroad. This, is, this was sort of the official dividing line. And then all the way over to uh, parts of Qinghai is what the third front in terms of geographically where it was. Um, and then it, it cut off, cuts off uh, Inner Mongolia as well. The reason you have this, this, this area as being the, the, the focus of it is because this is what it's conceived to be is it's going to be a backup military industrial base uh, in the central part of China so that if China gets invaded either from the coast and that gets occupied by the Americans or if it gets invaded from the north or the northwest by the Soviet Union, that there's going to be this core military industrial base in the central part of China that it's going to be able to stand up uh, still in war, and then we'll be able to arm uh, uh, the Chinese forces to, to fight back against uh, foreign invaders. The other thing about it is uh, two other important pieces are that it's hidden. It was it was it was built inside the uh, in, in mountainous areas. Uh, factories were dispersed, so spread out over large areas. Uh, and then also they were uh, supposed to be, um, in some instances, actually placed inside mountains, so actually placed inside caves. Uh, and this was also, this was conceived as a way of protecting the project, protecting the industry from uh, airplanes, and then also possibly nuclear weapons. So if you have things that are dispersed over a long, a large area, the logic was that it would be less likely that people would bomb you because they wouldn't want to bomb you know, some small factory. They would want to bomb something bigger. The same thing with the nuclear uh, weapon. They would, they would go for big sites like cities. They wouldn't go for these factories dispersed all over the place. 
One other piece of the third front is that there's two parts of it. So the central part that I just described, which is sort of from Qinghai all the way over to uh, the, the middle of Hubei and then north-south axis from there, uh, is that there's also something called, that area was called the, the big third front. On top of that, there's also the small third front. So pretty much all provinces, uh, in my book I have a map of this, it's spent a long time trying to find all these things. I, the, Pretty much all provinces got something called a small third front. And what this was is a similar sort of thing, but it was that all of the provinces also got these military industrial complexes up in the mountains that were going that were designed so that they could stand up in war and defend themselves, not have to rely on the PLA forces, not have to rely on supplies coming from, from elsewhere. So fitting in with the sort of self-reliant uh, theme uh, of, of the Maoist period, but in really militarized form. Um, and so you had backup light arms factories, so rifles and other things, also cements, iron, coal, uh, transportation facilities. There's all this sort of backup uh, military industrial stuff that was set up in uh, rear areas and uh, other provinces as well, beyond the big third front. Right. And, and what exactly was it about um, the third front scheme itself and the kind of larger geopolitical framework? Um, so in your introduction, I think you do a really fantastic job at um, drawing out, framing framing the, the Cold War era and, and the relevance of this third, third front scheme. And um, at the same time, you point out that um, the notion of the Cold War was not a predominant point of reference in Chinese national discourse, but who instead were constantly framing it around the anti-imperialist struggle. Um, but could you tell us a bit more about this geopolitical framework? So what was so relevant about the third front at the time? So when people talk about the Cold War in China, until the last few years, typically what historians would do is if they were going to talk about the Cold War, they would be talking about elite politics. And so at the extreme, what this could make it seem like is that the Cold War was something that took place between Zhou Enlai, Mao Zedong, some other people in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and their interactions with comparable elites in the United States, comparable elites in the Soviet Union, and that the larger society of, of China didn't really experience the Cold War. In some ways, this is true, at least on a, a discursive level. If you Something that I noticed uh, looking through sources is just that the Cold War never came up as something that's talked about in the press. If it is talked about in the press during the Mao era, it's often put in quotes. It actually almost completely disappears from from the from from mainstream media uh, during the time of the Third Front, so from the the, the late '60s into the uh, late 1970s, it pretty much is not there at all. Um, so it's not there on a on a discursive level. It's also just not there within people's lives. So when I was interviewing people, I noticed this as well: is that they would never talk about why they did the Third Front in terms of the Cold War. If I impose this on them. So if I ask them questions about the, you know, initially I came in there thinking, oh, this is a Cold War thing. I'll ask them about the Cold War. But you could sort of tell that this this wasn't a word they were used using to, you're used to uh, used to using. What they were used to using though was talking about American imperialism, Soviet revisionism. So the framework that of uh, the way that people thought about uh, China's position in the world this time is that China was in a struggle against American imperialism. It also was in a struggle against Soviet revisionism, or at one point it gets called socio-social imperialism, but the, the term that really stuck with the people that I interviewed was more revisionism. And so this is the framing of it, and I think it's important 
because it shows how the, the, the Cold War was not something that just operated at, uh, at, at the elite level. It was something that really became ingrained into the way that people understood their lives, but they didn't understand it as the Cold War. They understand this is a very hot war. It's a very tense war that where China could potentially be invaded. China uh, uh, had to harden itself, had to straighten itself in order to, to, to withstand these, these forces on the outside. And then people had to change their everyday practice, had to change their lives, had to change the way they think in, in order to prepare uh, for this war. You can see this in some ways most intensely with the Third Front, but this sort of discourse is all over uh, um, um, contemporary documents of the Mao era. Yeah, absolutely. And um, that really comes through in the first chapter of your book, The Coming of the Third Front Campaign, where you lay out the challenging security environment that the that the post greatly um, the post greatly forward era um, imposed on on Chinese society, which led to the construction. Um, sorry, not led, but um, but soon after um, triggered the construction of the Third Front. Um, could you um, tell our listeners a bit more about um, the kind of historical framework and and um, the social setting um, and political setting of China at the time? Yeah. So. In chapter one, what I really do is look at where are the origins of the Third Front. So you can say that the origins go back further uh, than what I have in the in the book. Part of it, you could say, goes back just all the way to the 19th century with China's concerns about being invaded. And then the, what this leads to at the, the statecraft level is these constant pushes inland to try to develop inland areas to develop something that's further away from the coast, which is perceived rightly, uh, sometimes more so, as dangerous, where this is where threats are going to be coming from. And so wanting to develop the, the, the inland areas is something you can go back to, to, to the 19th century and see this is done. The most well-known case, obviously, is with um, the, the nationalists in the, in the 30s retreating inland. But there's, there's earlier instances of this as well. But in terms of the, 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 the Mao period with uh, the Third Front, where you see this is with... Um, what happens is that after the Great Leap Forward, so in the late 1950s, China carries out this massive campaign where it's trying to do something that's similar to the Third Front in a way, and that they're trying to rapidly develop the country, create this industrial base that Chinese modernizers had wanted all throughout the late 19th century and early 20th century, but it never really happened. The Great Leap Forward, there's an attempt to do this, but as everybody knows, it's, it's disastrous with tens of millions of people dying. After the Great Leap Forward, there's a period of trying to, of cooling down, really, <laughs> and recovering. And it's not exactly clear what the direction of economic development is going to be. There's one group of people, more centered around Liu Xiaoqi and Deng Xiaoping, who wanted to have slower development. They also wanted to have focus on the coast. They wanted to focus on light industry. They wanted to focus on agriculture. And this is this was what the way that the third five-year plan, so the, the greatly forward was the second five-year plan, even though there wasn't much of a plan there. But the third five-year plan uh, gets gets delayed after the greatly forward, and then it's going to start. Uh, and they're they're talking about what are they going to do? You have this one group that wants to emphasize more light industry, raising consumer standards, and and focusing on the coast. And then Mao comes in, and he says, "No, this is not what we're going to do." Uh, this is May 1964 that he says this. This is not what we're going to do. Uh, or I don't think this is what we should do because 
There is security threats that we're facing from the, from the United States and Southeast Asia, most especially Vietnam. And then there's also security threats from the Soviet Union in the north uh, with, with rising border tensions there as well. As this is happening, Mao, Mao proposes that what they do instead is build this thing. And initially, he doesn't call it the Third Front. Initially, he just starts naming a couple of different projects that they should build in the southwest. Uh, eventually, he starts calling it the Third Front. But when he brings it up at first, other leaders, the way I read it, is that they say, they don't say no, but they say, okay, we'll do some preparatory studies. We'll look into this. We'll send some people out there to go look and 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 see what would like to be like to build these projects, uh, see how feasible they are uh, and what we would need to do it. But there's no actual authorization to, to do anything. The reason I, I argue that this happens is because while people at the it, 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 party elites we're still supportive of Maoist military strategy. So after the Great Leap Forward, there still is the idea that the core of, of Chinese uh, de defense strategy is going to be guerrilla warfare. Uh, it, and there's going to be an, an invasion will be a, a, allowed to a degree. You're going to draw people deep into the country and then you're going to fight back in a way similar that, to, the, to what the CCP had done before with, 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 the, with the Japanese and then also with the KMT. This is still taken to be the, the basic military strategy. But Maoist economic strategy of doing these big mass mobilization campaigns to carry out rapid industrial development and rapid building up of infrastructure, this has fallen by the wayside. And the, the group around Deng Xiaoping, uh, uh, Liu Xiaoqi and others, they wanted to continue with this more moderate development. Mao, on the other hand, wants to do this, uh, this more fast-paced development. And I say that the, the reason that, they, that the group doesn't want to move towards this fast rate development is because they're concerned that, of something like the Great Leap happening again. Uh, and you can see this in the way that they, they talk about it, what their concerns are. They don't exact, exp explicitly say this. Uh, this is partially because after the Great Leap Forward, uh, as, as Felix Nimhauer uh, has shown, talking about the famine or talking about the Great Leap Forward uh, in a negative light was something that really just pissed Mao off. It was something that you couldn't do, uh, and it was something that you had to you had to talk about it in code. And so they, they talk about in code th their concerns about this, but they really just drag their feet for many months. And it's only really with the... Um, Gulf of Tonkin incident and the the, the the one attack and then the, the fabled attack at the Gulf of Tonkin on, on the U.S. Uh, Navy. And then in response, the U.S. Navy starts bombing North Vietnam. And what happens is, then is that the, the, the party comes to be behind uh, the, the Third Front project and you start to get this acceleration of just, we're going to build this thing. You actually get documents saying, okay, we need to go out and find out how to build this stuff, where to put this stuff, sending out stuff to the provinces saying, send up what you think should be the projects. Uh, these are the projects we want to do. Also, what projects should you look at? What projects do you think should be part of this? Where should they be? What kind of resources you're, you're going to need? And this really accelerates in the late half of, 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 of uh, the last few months of 1964. And so it's really geopolitics that brings this about. Uh, one other piece that I'll just mention that, 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 brings it, that, that, that brings this about is that most people, when they think about uh, the Cultural Revolution, they think about conflicts between Mao and the, and the people I was just talking about, but they think about it in terms of culture. And so there's the famous story that Mao starts, uh, there's there's the Huai Rei play about Peng Dehuai, who's the person that criticizes Mao 
uh, or the Minister of National Defense who criticizes Mao during the Great Leap Forward, and that all these conflicts are just occurring in, in the cultural realm. What I show is actually there's a big conflict occurring also in the economic realm, and, and Mao wins it really about a year and a half, two years before the Cultural Revolution happens. And you can see this in that when Mao talks about the, 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 the Third Front in 1960, mid-1964, the late 1964, when it still hasn't been really approved, he switches back and forth between talking about the need to carry out uh, this, uh, the, this large security project and then also problems with the party, that the party is going soft or that the party is becoming revisionist. It's becoming like the Soviet Union. And so what does this mean to become revisionist? This, mean, this is the idea that in the Soviet Union, there had emerged this new group of elites who no longer were really committed to socialism. What they were committed, the egalitarian project of socialism, what they were more committed to was defending their own interests, defending their own the, the power of their own expertise, being able to have uh, nicer lives, uh, in really a privileged, privileged economic and political group within uh, within the larger uh, uh, Soviet state. Mao starts making accusations that this is what is happening in within China, and so as he's as he's so that you get, you see also here that the Cold War, that the Cold War is becoming an internal problem for China at the elite level, and then later on in the book you can see that this happens at the at the, 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 the at lower levels of society too, where not wanting China to move towards uh, uh, capitalism or move towards have a capitalist restoration, move towards Soviet revisionism is something that it, it, it's also uh, something that, uh, that that other historians, so most famously Chen Jian, has shown that Mao uses these te- these uh, international tensions or interna- geopolitical tensions as a way to ramp forward uh, specific uh, domestic goals. And here, really, the domestic goal is getting this big infrastructure project off the ground. Um, and the, the, the implica- implication of these, these international tensions and then this, uh, this, uh, the, the, this domestic d- developmental project Really does it, it does happen, and so that Mao is um, his direction of the economy. Of we're not going to have this slow development. We're not going to move this, the coastal strategy of focusing on consumers and focusing on raising consumer standards. What we're going to do instead is sort of a modified version of the Great Leap Forward, where we mass mobilize people for building big infrastructure projects, but it's it's carried out in specific parts of the country. So it's carried out in the this third front area of, of central China. And then also it's it's controlled from the center. So one of the things that people faulted with the Great Leap Forward is that you send out orders for, to build stuff and then everybody builds it. With the Third Front, that doesn't happen. It, with the Third Front, only some people know about it because only some people get documents about it. Uh, and so it, it it still does have this big project, but it's 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 uh, it's, it's it, there's there's constant push to have it to be centralized. And then the other sort of restraint that they put on it is that there's constant reminders of, they don't say, don't be like the Great Leap Forward. They don't say, don't kill people. <laughs> they don't say, don't starve people. Uh, but there is things of, don't put too much pressure on rural areas, is, is, is sort of the coded way that it gets it gets framed. Sometimes when you have elites talking about it, they'll be more frank about it, about abusing the, 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 the peasants uh, or abusing agricultural areas. Uh, but often it's it's phrased, it's phrased more in a, in a coded way of 
we can't put too much pressure on rural areas. We can't move too many people out of rural areas to carry out these projects. Yeah, and I think that comes out really well um, in chapter two, where you talk more about the recruitment, the, the millions of workers who constructed this third front. So chapter two, which is titled Good People and Good Horses Go to the Third Front, um, really looks at um, you know, how how people how people were mobilized um to even get in to even be involved um in this scheme. So these were places, as, as you just mentioned, the, these were places that, that people were being recruited to and mobilized to that they couldn't even find on a map. Um, the people who were recruiting workers were very uncertain, at least in, in chapter two, you describe how workers um, who were recruiting others couldn't even, like I just mentioned, locate it on a map. They couldn't even necessarily say the conditions that these workers would be going to. So it's very much this kind of unknown realm. And yet, um, you know, people were forced to go. Some, some, some wanted to go, and some were forced to. Um, and I think in chapter two, one thing um, you kind of, what you do really nicely is describe the very different, um, the you know that there wasn't a, a homogenous um, drive to go to the third front, and there was a lot of propaganda that was being pasted around about the third front construction in in these um, units. Um, kind of pointing out that if you don't go, then Chairman Mao can't, won't sleep well, and at the same time entreating all good people and good, good horses go to the third front. And yet at the same time, very very many urbanites across Shanghai um, in these factories were very distressed in the thought of having to move inland um, to these impoverished and unknown territories where they couldn't even see on a map where they were going, as I just mentioned. So could you tell us a bit more about what kinds of individuals went to the third front to work towards the construction of this military industrial base? And how did people respond to the recruitment efforts? Okay, yeah. So when I first started studying the third front, I thought of the main people who went to there were urbanites. That's the way that I conceived of it because there was a couple of movies that are about this. So Wang Xiaostrai, the director, had a movie called Shanghai Dreams or Qinghong, which was about the third front. Uh, there's also uh, 24 City, is a, a, a Zhang Ke movie, which was also about third front people. And there the focus is really on people being moved from big cities on the coast or in the northeast and then being plopped down in the middle of nowhere in, in, in inland China. So initially, that's what the way I thought about it. But then when I started looking at documents and looking at uh, memoirs, I started to realize that focusing just on them was misleading and that, yes, they're the most uh, sort of trumpeted group in, in memoir literature, not necessarily memoir literature, but in, in, in movies for sure, uh, and then also just in state, uh, state discourse about the Third Front. But really, the bulk of labor, so about 14 million people is how much I've counted so far. I spent about a month trying to find how many people took part in the third front, reading through all this stuff, reading through all these gazetteers, reading through all these articles, trying to figure out how many people were there. So I have these tables at the end of the book, which uh, just look like a couple tables, but these took like weeks to, com to compile just to find everybody. And I know there's more because I found more after I after the book was, was already uh close to going into production, but all the numbers haven't been added in because it's it just, it gets to be unbearable because the third front's too big. But in any case, I, I started noticing that there's this huge other population and what it is, is rural part-time labor. So temporary construction workers. And this is really the big, the big group that does heavy lifting. And so what would happen is 
you would get an order, we'll say, from the provincial government to, that this it, this project is going to happen. So it could be we're going to build this iron this uh, this ironworks in the mountains. And so there would be an order saying we need X amount of labor from, and there would I've see, you can see this in documents. We need these from these different counties is where the labor is going to come, and it would be thousands, tens of thousands of people. They're going to be mobilized for building this stuff, and it would be people around um, the project who were who were being mobilized. In some documents, I saw that some rural people were actually coming from other parts of the country. I'm not sure. I never was able to figure out exactly how this was done. But there were some rural people that were pulled up out of villages, say, in Shanxi or other parts of China. They were shipped into to the in, interior to partake in these projects. This doesn't seem to have been the bulk of people, but it was interesting that they were bringing a few people from other provinces. I'm not quite sure why. Then the other group is um, the urbanites. So people who are brought from Shanghai, brought from Nanjing, brought from Guangzhou, uh, Changchun, other sort of big cities. These people had very different experiences being mobilized. Um, and for me, it was important to show that they had different experiences, partially because uh, when people come from the outside and look at China, they often sort of think that there's this march step group of people that just do what the party says. And that's as as my book shows and many other books have showed is that no, there's a there's a wide variety of social groups in the way that they respond uh, to state dictates or state uh, 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 policy is, is important to take into account. And so with urbanites, what you can see is that they're overall much more distressed about this. They very much experience this as a social economic step down. Um, they when they get orders to be, that they're going to be sent inland, there's often lots of crying. There's lots of complaining to their bosses. Uh, there's lots of anxiety. Uh, there's lots of depression. In some cases, there's suicides. Uh, and so this is a very different experience than what you get in rural areas, where in rural areas, it's harder. You don't get as much of the... Um, I, I, I didn't look at archives from, from rural areas. I relied mainly on, on memoir literature for, 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 for people's experience of this. But you don't, at least there, you don't see as much of, you don't, you don't see this, this depression angle for sure. But also what, what, what you can see is that people are overall are more motivated about this. And it's a couple of different reasons. One, I think, is that it's temporary. It's, it's a short term, it's a short term project uh, rather than you're going to be sent inland and who knows how long you're going to be there. Also for them, it's for people in rural areas, it's more of a socioeconomic step upwards and that you get paid in cash. Um, the cash doesn't directly go to you. Uh, it goes to uh, the work unit who's in charge of mobilizing you. But that incentivizes you, incentivizes the worker, but then also incentivizes the, uh, the, the, the work unit because they're getting extra money that, they, that rural areas otherwise wouldn't have had. Um, and as, as people know, uh, the rural areas in China overall uh, were there just wasn't much cash. Uh, instead, it was people got mainly paid in work points. So having cash meant that uh, people were able to earn much more than they normally would through working at the third front. Um, and then also the, the working that they were part of would also get more money uh, from, from, from hiring you out. In terms of other people's responses, there's, there, there's different variety of responses. So even on the coast, you get, uh, you get different responses. Some people uh, so if we, we go sort of up the ladder to the, 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 the city or the provincial government level, provincial governments, when they get orders to move people, 
I can't follow with documents all of the ins and outs of their discussions. But what becomes apparent is that they also drag their feet. So just like people on factory floors who don't want to go inland, there's also Shanghai doesn't want to send all these people inland. Uh, you know, they, they, there's talk about we should send people inland, but then there's all you can see that there's constant dragging of feet because they just they don't fulfill the numbers. They don't fulfill the quotas. And it, it, sometimes it takes them years for them to fulfill the quotas. And then there's a couple, uh, there's also in some documents you can see where they say, you know, let's not, let's not forget the coast. Let's not, uh, there, there's concern that with the third front, we're just going to focus on building inland areas. This isn't going to be efficient. We need to also focus on uh, the, 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 the coast. We need to focus on the existing industrial base. It's going to be more productive. We're going to get quicker return on our buck if we focus here. Um, and so you can see this happening with the elites there. Also in the inland areas, you get a, with some inland officials, I've seen a similar uh, talk of we can't just all, switch all to the to the to the uh, inland areas. Uh, but you also see other officials who it's uh, the, the way that I sort of think of it is like, OK, we're going to open up shop. You know, oh, the third front is here. They're going to invest lots of money. Here's all these projects we have for you. Here's all the things that you can invest in. Uh, and, and because the, 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 for them to get more resources uh, from, from the state. In terms of uh, other other responses, is that I think that the other things that make a big difference in terms of how people respond is their age, their gender matters, um, and also the sort of the experiences of the Chinese Revolution. So if we just stick with the experience of the Chinese Revolution, people who had been part of the revolution for decades, so people who had either gone on the long march or people who had worked in the revolutionary base areas or people who just for so long you know, when, when we think about making out a career, there's a certain academic career of what we do. For these people, their career really was the revolution and their, their, their sense of self and their sense of directness, their sense of how they were going to move China forward was really tightly connected with the revolution for decades. And so for these people, being a revolutionary cadre, this is, this is what they did. And to, to have the third front to be the next step of this is what we need to do to build the revolution. This is what we need to do to defend the revolution from outside enemies and then also uh, uh, internal enemies. This is this is what we need to do. And you can see this in the, in the memoirs of, of the, the leaders who talk about uh, their experiences. Also, the other group that you see that, that that's uh, important in terms of the way that they think of their revolutionary experience is young people. So many young people, uh, they, they think, this is something that's been commonly shown for the Cultural Revolution uh, and why people were enthusiastic for this, for, for it initially. And you can also see this with the Third Front, is that people who had grown up after 1949 were born slightly before 1949. These were people who had been told that the, the, the great era, the golden era, was in the past. It was, the, it was the 30s and the 40s of when the revolution really took place and the Chinese Communist Party party came to power and liberated China from, from, from imperialism. This is, this is the narrative. So a lot of these, these younger people wanted to have this revolutionary experience. And so the third front was a way for them to show, to show their commit to the revolution and also contribute to, to uh, this great national uh, project, great socialist built project of, of building socialism within China. And so this is some people initially were, were excited about this and some of their enthusiasm lasted of building the third front uh, because this was conceived as a way of, of defending the revolution and then also making uh, buildings uh, socialism. Because some people, 
forget about socialism is it in a lot of ways it's just a big construction project at least on the ground <laughs> it's, it's, it's 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 a massive construction project of just building stuff where you're quite literally uh building uh building things to make it socialism come into existence yeah and i think that infrastructural um the kind of materiality of socialism really comes through in chapter three where you write about um the mode the kind of the, the ideology, the, obviously the Maoist ideology that was implemented in these development schemes and this kind of heavily industrial apparatus that the Third, third, third Front took on. Um, and also in this chapter, you write a lot more about um, the actual the conditions, right? So in Chapter 2, you talk about recruitment of people. And um, in Chapter 3, you write about um, the reader gets more of an impression of what it was actually um, to, to be in the, in the Third Front. And it was often very deadly. Um, and and um, it was glossed over for this kind of political loyalty um, for Maoism. Um, I think one shocking <laughs> figure that, that you start the chapter with is the building of the Changdu Kunming Railroad. Um, and you in the chapter, it says that for every kilometer that was built, it killed on average two people. Um, so considering the... the this was the and, and at the same time, considering um, that this railroad was one of the greatest testaments to communist ability, uh, the communist party's ability to engineer Chinese landscape at the time, there was no announcement at the completion of this railroad that that killed um, thousands, millions, perhaps, um, because it was kept hidden from from the from China's Cold War foes. So. I thought this was really fascinating and something that you kind of point out, obviously, throughout the book, how the kind of the secrecy that was involved. But could you tell us a bit more about the construction of the Third Front and, and what the what were the principles that formed the backbone through its construction? And you already touched upon this um, earlier in the in the discussion, but what how did these principal goals change as the Cultural Revolution started to roll out? Okay. Um. So first on uh, the, the death parts, so finding death statistics, statistics is not easy. Um, it, it is clear that the railroads were deadly. Uh, the, the thing that has the most, uh, is most trumpeted, but also is within China, uh, but also the easiest to find a statistic is about is, is deaths on the Chengdu uh, Railroad, or the Chengdu Kunming Railroad. Um, when it's talked about in China, though, it, it's definitely talked about as being a tragedy, but the, the deaths are very much sublimated in the national discourse of building the, building socialism, building the nation, building industry. And so there's deaths, but they're worthwhile deaths. Um, and so you see this other railroads, too. You can see that there was deaths around them uh, as well. Um, and, and partially the, 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 this leads into what you were talking about before, is that it's because of the way that the, the, the projects are built. Um, so I don't want to overinflate the deaths. There definitely are there, but um, they they definitely they, they're definitely there. Uh, but they're they're more in the, the ranges of thousands. It's hard to exactly tell. Uh, one other thing I'll just mention on that point, though, before I get into talking about how what was the actual construction process like, is that I have found some evidences of not quite famine, but definitely starvation. Uh, and I've seen this especially with uh, with railroads it, where. The case that I was able to find was in it was through um, Gazetteers for the railroad that connects uh, Chongqing and uh, uh, now it's Xiangyang in, in, in Hubei, sort of northwest Hubei. And what you saw there is that because so many people were mobilized, that it seems like what happened is that people were, were being pulled out of rural areas and not producing enough food. 
And so that you you have this this issue of just uh, of there being some sort of of starvation in that area, and it seems like it's connected to the third front. At least that's the way it gets presented in gazetteers in sort of a coded way. Uh, you can see more widely, which we'll talk about later, that sort of not necessarily starvation, but definitely bare subsistence is is is, is part of just the basic strategy of building these projects. But in terms of your bigger question of about how this stuff is built, I think the way a useful way to think about this, which I try to do in the book, is it's about what does Maoist science look like? What does Maoist technology look like? And so there's a couple different key pieces here. So to, to, to talk about this, I really benefited from the work of Sigrid Smelter and her talk about self-reliance and what this looks like. And so self-reliance can, when people think about this, this can sort of mean we're just going to focus on internal uh, development. We're not going to look at other techniques. And that's not exactly what it means. Self-reliance means you're going to use resources from the local areas. But the local area could be big and small. The local area could just be your local construction project. It could also be the city. It could be the province. It could be the nation. Uh, and also, in some instances, it does mean actually acquiring resources uh, from the international realm as well. This idea of self-reliance, though, really comes out of uh, the, the wartime experience of the party, so the 30s and the 40s, of that we don't have the resources, we, the Communist Party, don't have the resources to carry out industrial development, to carry out really military campaigns. So we're going to be self-reliant. We're going to rely on native methods. We're going to rely on domestic resources. We're going to rely on the people and resources that we have here in the base areas. And this gets filtered into the Maoist project, really, especially from the Great Leap Forward forward. And you can see this in the, in the third front. And so when the construction process, what this means is we're going to have, instead of relying on cement, because you can see this in documents where there's discussions of we don't have enough cement. So there's these discussions within our within our construction group of what we're going to do about this. You know, we don't have enough cement or we don't have enough trucks. So there's discussions about what to do. And it, the discussions usually break down in this way, is that there's this capitalist group or this bourgeois group, uh, which, which here you can see how sort of Cold War ideas are getting filtered into Chinese uh, science and technology. Of, there's this capitalist group or this bourgeois group that wants to do things slowly or wants to do more planning or wants to wait until we get more cement or until we get more trucks. And obviously, this is not the route we should follow. The route we should follow is this, the socialist way, or what I really see as the Maoist developmental way uh, of building socialism. Uh, and so what this means is we're going to build stuff quickly. We're going to build stuff with some planning, but not, not as much as the experts in our group want, want. We're going to rely on local resources. And so sometimes what this means is rather than using cement, we're going to use mud to build our factories. So this is, you, you see this proliferation of, of, of factories that are quite literally built out of rammed earth. Uh, you also see, uh, instead of these experts who say that we need factories that have roofs, so this is something that happens in, in some places, is instead of having roofs, which is a bourgeois capitalist idea, we're going to not have roofs because this, is, this is, makes us more self-reliant. This makes us more reliant on, on, on resources we have. Um, an element that's important in this is that this is also all very militarized. So to understand this sort of this push towards speed, 
is that there's there's this there's this idea that because of the wartime emergency, because of the wartime pressures, we can't go slow. We have to go fast. And so we, we need to speed up. So instead of waiting for a truck to come or more trucks to come to move supplies from the local train station, what we're going to do is mobilize thousands of people to walk over to the train station, put this stuff on carts, and then drag it back over to the factory. And, or, you know, instead of waiting for uh, cement to, to build the walls for this factory, we're going to figure out some sort of way to use local resources to quickly put the factory up. In, in the end, this en ends up being very problematic, um, partially because uh, in, in one case that I don't, that doesn't make it into the book, uh, but, I, but I have another article about uh, elsewhere, is that you can't have a factory that has cement walls because the machinery causes the factory to shake and then the walls break I mean, if, they're, if they're made out of, out, of, out of mud. And so in some cases, these places get rebuilt. Other things were, which will happen is in these debates of, for some reason, capitalist idea is to have, it becomes a capitalist idea that we need to focus on repairing machinery. This is, this gets, this gets, this gets uh, coded as being capitalist that we're going to repair. We're not going to overwork the machines. And so you have experts that will say we need to do this, and then this just won't happen. They won't repair the machines, and so the stuff will just break because they overwork it, um, uh, or that some part of the some part of the machine needs they need some extra part for it. They could wait for the part and said they or they could just use it. Instead, they decide to just use it, and then unsurprisingly, the thing breaks down or doesn't focus completely uh, well. And so what you can see here is that with the Cultural Revolution and this idea that there is a Maoist way of developing, of, of developing, and there is a bourgeois or a capitalist way of, de of developing. This gets built into ideas of how to construct industry, how to actually create socialist industry, create socialist defense. Uh, and this has very pro uh, uh, problematic results in terms of actually being able to build a functioning, uh, functioning in industry because alongside people trying to build this stuff in this arduous conditions, you also have people who are, who are just fighting over, often sometimes quite literally fighting over, uh, not, if not necessarily with coming to blows, uh, but uh, yelling at each other over what is the correct socialist developmental way. Uh, and so it's, uh, I, I, can't, I can't even really imagine how much of a pain that must have been. <laughs> yeah, and, and here you're referring to um, kind of, um with the outbreak of, of cultural revolution, right? So how the principal goals changed within the party itself. I mean, this is, if I understood chapter three correctly, um, you describe very much, um, obviously, obviously with the start of the cultural revolution, um, the enemy wasn't so much anymore the external enemy, it was also internal within within the party itself. So meanwhile, as, as there was this desperate um, campaign to build the third front and as you were just just describing in great detail the kind of strenuous um, conditions that that workers will put into this construction meanwhile there's also this battle within within the um, political party itself yeah yeah I mean that yeah. the, the way that, that I, I, I phrase it in the book is that there's really contradictory demands for defending socialism so def what defending socialism can mean lots of different things but in the context of the third front what it means is there's with cultural revolution. There's idea we need to defend uh, Chinese socialism from outside influences, 
But these outside influences, these dangerous bourgeois, these dangerous uh, Soviet revisionist influences aren't just outside the country. They're within the country. There's something that, that's eroding us from, from within the inside. So we don't need to just fight the Cold War outside the country. We need to f- fight it within the country. We need to fight it internally. Uh, and so it, it, it makes you look at the, the Cultural Revolution somewhat differently and that the Cultural Revolution isn't just a, a domestic event. It's something that's intertwined with these ideas of what's the correct way forward for international socialism and how that plays out uh, domestically. But this ends up becoming contradictory because at the same time, there's this push. How are you going to defend socialism with the third front? You need to build lots of military, uh, lots of military industry. But as I was saying before, building lots of military industry with a lack of resources. So that's something I didn't sort of highlight before, but it's worth stressing is that this is all premised on just the, 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 the Chinese incapacity or Chinese lack of an industrial base to be able to try to carry out these projects. That's already a big enough problem. But then layering on top of that, this other demand of, okay, we're not going to just defend socialism by rapidly building up this industrial base, but we're also going to have to carry out this this other project to defend socialism of we need to push back against certain for- techniques, certain ide- ways of thinking, certain kinds of people who, uh, who, who get classified as bourgeois or elitist uh, or as foreign that if we follow their ways, that's going to, that's going to corrupt the revolution or it's going to degrade the revolution and possibly and, and sideline the revolution from, from moving towards where it needs to go. And so it, it, it and it's a contradiction that's it's never solved, really. It's a, it's a contradiction that's there from the beginning uh, with, with the Chinese Communist Party during the Mao era, but it, 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 it's, it's not solved during, during, the, uh, d- during the Mao era. It just, it's, it's structurally there, and then it becomes really intense uh, um, in terms of what the, 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 the consequences are of this contradiction during the, the Third Front period. Yeah, and I think your your research really is a fantastic way of, of drawing on these larger kind of national um, or or the kind of political contradictions in, in this in this um, in the scheme itself. Um, but let's move closer to what to the everyday life um, of of people who were based in the Third Front. So you you do this, you describe the everyday life of, of the people in Chapter Four. Um, titled "Produce First and Consume" or, and "Consume Later," um, and you delve um, you delve closer to to the steel town of Panzhuhua, which is in the deep mountains of southern Sichuan. Um, could you tell our listeners a bit more about um, what this chapter consists of? What did everyday life uh, in Panzhuhua um, consist of for the workers in for the Third Front project? So I think that the if we look at start on the structural level. What's key for understanding everyday life here is the, is, is really the title. Um, so this produce first, consume later is a term that comes out of the Daqing oil field. So the Daqing oil field is something that you can see all over Chinese documents in the late 60s and the 70s. And what it was is China, after the, the, the breaking with the Soviet Union, there is it doesn't really have much oil. During the Great Leap Forward, they discover oil in, in Daqing in the north, northeast of China. And this, what this means is quite literally the Chinese economy can, can move and run because otherwise they just wouldn't have had oil and, and dodging makes this possible. But one of the ideas that comes out of this is that, uh, which was there before, but becomes sort of more, uh, that, that comes out of the, becomes uh, sort of codified after dodging is just the idea that we really need to prioritize production 
and consumption needs to be downplayed uh, and it, or needs to be repressed, depending on how you look at it. So we need to build stuff. And so you can see this in, the, in, in, in Panjahua and that all the resources need to go into getting the factory so that it is able to produce steel. And so if people's lives are all structured around uh, the, the date shifts because of the Cultural Revolution, but the date that the, the, that the factory is going to first have this steel come out of the steel furnace or iron and then steel come out of the steel furnace. This is what the, everything needs to be geared towards. And all the other stuff needs to be downplayed because of that. And so you have this rhetoric and this experience of people of that what you need to do is not be concerned about your own material well-being, about your own uh, your your own sort of material uplift. Instead, it's this collective material uplift that needs to be prioritized. And in a concrete matter, what this mat concrete terms, what this ends up meaning is that you're going to live in tents. So a lot of third front cities initially are tents. I didn't realize this, but there's there's actually these tent cities all over China during during the Mao period. Uh, when I start out studying this, I didn't realize this, but there's they're all over the place. There's these canvas tents. Sometimes they're thatched huts. Uh, the sort of a more advanced thing is moving into to to mud housing uh, or sort of mud brick housing. And then if you get really nicer, you end up moving into to 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 brick houses. Is, is sort of the, the final stages of this stuff. Also plays out in terms of food and just that there's very little uh, vegetables that people are eating. In a place like Panjahua, which is way up in the mountains, you're getting shipments of, of vegetables that come in. And so you might get a shipment of cabbage. That means that you're going to be eating cabbage until you get another shipment of vegetables because that's the only vegetable in town. Um, there's very little meat uh, as well. And so people have different experiences of, of, of this. Um, some people who are coming from the cities, this is really quite shocking to them. Uh, the, 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 the life that they, they, they've been uh, mobilized for or thrown into is the way that some of them experience it. Uh, because they, they just hadn't experienced this sort of uh, bare subsistence. It's just something that went on for years and years and years. Other people who were uh, rural folk, some of them, they, they, they thought of this as, uh, as, as kind of normal because this is what they had had in the countryside already because because of the Maoist model just prioritized into urban development, the, the rural areas already had repressed consumption. And so this wasn't necessarily something that was new to them. Um, and then also for some of them, they thought actually life in Panjahua was better because at least there they had guaranteed food. They had, uh, they, 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 the housing wasn't particularly nice, but at least it was housing. And then the other thing is that gradually, you start to get the development of, of, of the downway system or what we would think of, 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 a, of a nice downway. And so initially this is also repressed because of the idea that you need to produce first and consume later. So we're not going to invest heavily in hospitals. We're not going to invest heavily in, uh, in uh, cultural centers or in movie theaters. Uh, these are going to be something that eventually come to the, to, to the city. So instead, you have these impromptu arrangements. You have outside cinemas uh, with, with, with mobile field teams, or you have mobile kitchens uh, for, for, for eating. But eventually, you do get a, you do get a nicer uh, places for people to live. And people, uh, some people start to, to, to like this. They can see the fruits of their own labor. Uh, but it ends up being something where, especially in a place like Panjahua, which really is in the middle of nowhere, if you go there today, 
Uh, I've heard it's better now because there, there, I think there is a, a high-speed train from Chengdu to, to uh, Panjihua, but it's still five hours, I think, to get there. Before, when I went, it was in 2011, and I think it was the last time I went, 2011 or 2012, it took 10 hours still then to get there. Um, and before, it took days to get there on trucks. And so it's really out in the middle of nowhere. And other places, it's a similar thing. The, the, these factories are out in the middle of, of nowhere, or they're, or they're out in the middle of, of the way the people experiment is the middle of nowhere in the mountains. And so that the urbanites, even though they can see the fruits of their labor, even though they can see that, that they're contributing to the larger project of modernizing China through building up industry, through building up its capacity to produce basic industrial materials, building up industrial networks, they want to leave. They would like to be able to go home and that they don't, they don't come to see Panjohar or wherever their other third front work unit is as their home. They still see Shanghai as home. They still see uh, the Northeast as home and they, and they want to go back there. And, and a lot of, in some factories, this gets augmented because of the connections that still exist with the home areas. So this is something that um, Emily Honig has shown with, with, with sent down youth and that, if Shanghai youth get sent up to the Northeast, they still had connections back with, in Shanghai uh, through actual government institutions that were set up to, to, to manage them. And, uh, and this meant that there was material flows and other things that went with, with their connections back in Shanghai. I found a similar thing with, with the third front is that the third front is set up so that the way I thought, the way I started thinking of it is, it, is it just these big factories on the coast in the Northeast and other big cities in China, they had kids and they were, they were, they were, they were actually, they, they were, they were responsible for taking care of these places. They were responsible of getting, of supplying labor, you know, so supplying labor, which would be the good people, which we talked about before, and then also supplying the good horses, which is the machinery uh, to these factories. And so what this meant is that later on, when the factories were actually uh, built, people in, in we'll say in Panjawa, they would still uh, use their contacts back in other factories to, to bring in resources. And what this meant is that people could see the divides. People could see that they could see the, the progress of their own material life in inland areas. But at the same time, they could see stuff coming in from the out, outside areas. And then also they would go back home. They would go, the party allowed uh, people to go back uh, for, for about two weeks uh, once a year to go back to their homeland areas. And what these homeland, what these, these trips often were, were just big shopping sprees. I mean, it was partly seeing family and friends, but they're also just big shopping sprees of just buying tons of stuff for them and them, their friends to bring back home. And this, this made it so that the divide was even more clear. Um, and so a lot of people wanted to go home partially because of the material life, and then also because of their children. They want, uh, uh, something that came out in interviews fairly quickly was that you know, I would ask people, I would ask kids, you know, who, who, what was your school life like? Because that's, you know, sort of a, as a modern person, the basic thing that people do is go to school. And so they would talk about this, but then it became apparent that it was their parents and their parents' friends and their colleagues who were being teachers. And the reason that they were doing this is because they, there just wasn't enough uh, ed, uh, qualified teachers. And so they wanted their kids to still have good education. And so they would become the teachers. But there was the hope of the parents that eventually their kids would be able to leave. So they, they had really devoted themselves to building this third front. Some of them had done it begrudgingly. Some of them had found sort of meaning in it. 
but a lot of them really didn't want their kids to stay. They really wanted their kids to be able to, to go back uh, and go back to Shanghai, go back to Beijing, go back to somewhere else where they could have a better life uh, and, and not have, have to have their life sacrificed to, to this military industrial defense project. Yeah. And um, at the same time, you really point out um, kind of how secluded they were and also the risks of, of I mean, the, you, you do write the chances of, of running away were so it would have it would have been difficult to survive but then if people did and you know during these two weeks of holiday when they went to maybe their urban homes um, the risk of not returning to the third front was obviously um, a risk to their entire um, family and their livelihood yeah it, it seems like some people were able to I mean, you see this in the Cultural Revolution, too, with, with sent down youth, uh, that some people did flee and then went back home. It's hard for me to trace those people. I never really met anybody who knew about these people and was able to tell me much about them. But I think it was technically possible for you to flee, go back to your, your, your town, and then you would have to live off your friends, maybe get some sort of a legal job uh, or maybe change your identity if possible to, to, to get some sort of work. Um, but overall, running away was difficult. Because of the HUCO system, you know, so the household registration system that so where you worked determined basically the, the Communist Party basically became not just the only employer of people. It also became the major supplier of just basic uh, material goods for people. So if you wanted to get your grain ration, you got it through your work unit. So if you left, then you would lose this. You would lose the, 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 this entitlement. And it wasn't very easy for you to get back those sort of material goods uh, otherwise. But just to go back to one other point that, that, that you mentioned earlier, which I think is important for understanding how people experience the Third Front, is just the, the idea of, of it being secret. And so normally stuff like the Third Front, if you're going to build Panjohua, you're going to build this massive uh, steel project, this would have been something that would have been trumpeted in the media. This would have been something that was like dodging. It would have been a big deal. It would have been the great progress of socialism and it's, it's overcoming uh, all these difficulties uh, of geographic difficulties, material shortage difficulties, uh, personal difficulties of having to sacrifice you know, your time with your family to work instead on the revolution. This would have been stuff that would have been trumpeted in the press and you can see it in other press articles about other smaller projects. But because the third front is secret, it's never brought up. It's it's never something that you can be you can be glorified uh, in the in the public eye, uh, and so, and it never really happens. It, it, in the night, late 1970s, the, the Third Front starts to be revealed, uh, but when it's re in the press, but when it's revealed, it's it's not it's clear what the thing is. They just sort of there's somebody went to a Third Front factory, and that's that's kind of it. They don't really say at all what it is, and so. It, it means for the, the people in terms of their memories of, of their experience of this is it it's different than if they had been at a uh, you know something like Daching or, or, or some other uh, project that that had, that had been um, uh, publicly recognized. This would have meant that they could have sort of claimed that they were part of this grand national project to defend the nation and, and to build socialism. But because it's a Cold War project and the party is concerned about this stuff being attacked. It, it it never it never uh, it, it never exists on the national realm. You can have these local celebrations, and as I talk about in the book, there's there's often these these whenever you have any um, 
uh, projects that are completed, you have these big local gatherings to celebrate the achievements that have occurred and you celebrate the workers that have been involved in the project, but these are never elevated up and brought into the larger uh, national uh, discourse because it's a, it's a Cold War project and they assume that if other people can see it and other people know about it, then it's not safe and that defeats the whole, the, the whole security uh, uh, ideas around it. Yeah, and I think that's also something that you really point out again, the, the, the secrecy of it um, and also the, the top, how the topography allowed for that secrecy and you really, um, you make a good point at um, comparing that with other um, schemes, for example, that were completed in, in the Soviet Union, um, which were more visible and, and you point out that obviously the, the, differ, the stark difference to when the Third Front campaign was being and pushed forward is that then the nuclear war threat was al- already much, um, much more apparent globally. Um, and this moves us closer to your final chapter, uh, where you provide an assessment of the CCP's efforts to industrialize China during this um, third third front campaign. Could you tell our listeners a bit more about what happened with the third front campaign and some of the implications it continues to carry in today's regional development? Yeah. So if you're going to look at the third front and what was its sort of industrial legacies its social legacies, you've got to look at it from a few different perspectives. First off, I, the story I tell is pushing back or challenging sort of the dominant narrative that, that's out there, uh, which is that instead of out there in, in academic discourse, is that, instead, is that the third front was a big waste is one way that it's often phrased, or that the third front shouldn't have been built, at least on the scale that it was. Instead, what they should have happened is there should have been moderate development in the interior uh, that could, to res- in response to security concerns, and then also uh, at the same time continuing to focus on developing the coast. So this is an idea that was um, uh, advocated by Barry Noughton in a couple of his pioneering articles, which were hugely beneficial to my writing of this book. But what I found in the sources is that this alternate strategy of we're going to develop the coast and develop the interior, this is something that never really exists in discussions of the third front. There's there's some people who say we need to focus, not forget the coast, but I haven't found evidence of really this sort of balanced development scheme that's there. And so if you're going to develop the interior in terms of the policies that are on the table at the time, the third front is really the only policy that ever gets any weight to it within the bureaucracy. If you look at terms of its consequences for industrial development in the interior, there's no denying that this thing is massively wasteful. According to the party's own statistics in the early 1980s, about half of all of the projects are deemed a failure uh, and just are completely abandoned, which is a pretty stunning number of just amount of, of waste. Uh, what they actually qualify as in waste and other things is hard to is, is, is sort of impossible to determine because I just have them saying that this is what they what they think. Part of this happens, I think, for a couple different reasons. One is because of the military logic behind it, and so just building. Uh, normally, if you're going to build a car factory, you want to build the car factory in a central location where there's a lot of uh, users of these vehicles. So. They're going to build the car factory in Wuhan, the provincial capital. You're not going to build it up in northwestern uh, China. So this is the second automobile works and and build it way up out in the mountains and then split it up into 
you know, 34 different pieces and spread it over a large area. That's not normally what you do if you're trying to build a car factory. But this is what happens because of the security logics to it. And then there's other things beyond just sort of the, the, the industrial geography. There's also the 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 way uh, the, the politicization of, of science or the, or the methods of, the, of Maoist science of just this conflicts between what's considered to be correct uh, socialist science uh, versus what's considered to be bourgeois science uh, or, or capitalist science. And then all the tensions that this leads to and all these conflicts this leads to and all the problems that this leads to of, of, of building these projects uh, and, it, and the extra costs, the slowing down of the projects that this causes. Uh, and in, in, at least on the bigger projects that I can track, you get, for example, dams that are built very quickly. So the dam goes up, but the dam has cracks in it. And so you have to spend the next few, few years actually uh, fixing it so that in some cases, the speeding up process leads to, yes, you have a function, maybe a, a factory that exists or you have a dam that exists, but it needs to be repaired because of, because of uh, uh, if you're going to build a dam, there are certain technical qualifications that you need to pay attention to. And you can call them socialist or capitalist if you want, but if, if, if you don't understand how to pour cement, it's, it's, it, you're going to get to problems either way. Um, in terms of the, uh, so this is sort of the more, We'll say that the negative view of the project or the, the problems of, of, of its legacy. On the other hand, what I argue is that what gets built uh, are these big development blocks. So this is an idea that comes out of Aristide Kander and a couple other people wrote a book about how they're in industrial societies. There are three main development blocks that are centered on three different kinds of fuel. So there's electricity, oil, and coal. And so if we go through and the, all, each one of these development blocks has all these not, uh, all these other industries that are related to it. So with coal, you have railroads and iron and steel. Uh, with electricity, you have all the electronic industries. You have all you have electrical grids. You have hydropower. Uh, with oil, you have the car and all its associated industries as well, and all the associated industries of extracting oil. And so, if we just go through a couple of these industries with the third front, is you can see that all of these development blocks do get more established, but they get established in a different way. So for, for example, with coal, if you were just to follow geography, you would want to develop the coal most in the north because this is where the coal was in China. The biggest deposits of coal in China are really in northern Shanxi, up into Inner, Mongol Inner Mongolia, uh, and then also uh, 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 Shanxi as well. But these areas get downplayed because of the concerns about uh, the Soviet Union. And so they invest more in the South. Some of the places in the South with coal, this makes sense because there's, there's high quality coal there. But there's a lot of other places where the coal is just a very low grade. So they do open up and produce a lot more, but it's not a very uh, high quality. With oil, you also get pushed, you get the development of various uh, oil projects. The biggest is still really dodging, but you get other areas where they develop oil fields. Um, uh, a lot of these projects, uh, for both coal and for oil, these are things that they started during the Great Leap Forward. So you can see, if you look at sort of the history of, uh, of, 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 of uh, industrial development projects, there's this big burst of stuff that happens during the Great Leap Forward. A lot, uh, most of it goes, runs into the ground, but then it gets picked up back during the, during the, the third front. You can see this with oil, you can see this with coal, and then you can also see this with electricity as well. Um, 
with electricity as well, you get you get you get all these problems I mentioned before with uh, dams and other things. But overall, what I argue is that you do get the building blocks of these of, of not just the energy sectors, but also all the associated industries that go with these different developmental blocks, and so that industrial society becomes much more entrenched within the interior in terms of just raw infrastructure, also in terms of capacity of just skilled people who would work at these factories, work at these mines, work at the re associated research institutes. Um, I don't track all of them in detail because that would just be a, a whole other book in, its, in itself, but I can show that the numbers of just people working in the coal sector or people who would work in uh, uh, the, the oil sector or work in uh, just uh, educational sector just increases over time. And so this becomes more entrenched in the interior, these different developmental blocks. But this isn't necessarily a positive thing. We could just view this as a positive thing, and this is the way the party would paint it. But if you look at it from an ecological perspective, this becomes a problem. Because for some things, China, the interior still is, uh, we'll say, self-reliant, which is, was, was one of the goals of, of the Third Front. So with, with hydropower. China still, the interior of China now sends massive amounts of energy from the, from the interior from these big hydropower projects that get built later, uh, but uh, but also the projects from earlier that are building on some of the the assets that you have set up during the during the third front period, so that the interior still does supplement uh, coal, uh, not sorry, not coal, electricity uh, from hydropower projects. Same thing you can see with natural gas, but with other things. It really it makes it so that you have this new industrial society that's created within it, the inland regions, but they end up being dependent upon sources of energy from other from other areas. They also end up being dependent upon technology transfer from other areas because, as I mentioned before, people don't want to stay there. They go elsewhere, so people have to come back in and sort of upgrade the technology later on uh, because there is the existing infrastructure there, but they become dependent upon outside uh, out, outside areas. Uh, and so this creates it so that you have this society that's dependent on outside resources and then also is just putting more and more strain on um, the ecology of the interior of China, but also the ecology of China and then also the world and, and just in terms of Chinese industrial development writ large. To get to your last part of the question about what are the um, legacies in the contemporary world of just Chinese industrial development, the third front is something that gets layered on. Um, so in that the problem that one of the problems that the party's trying to deal with the third front is this divide between the coast and the interior, that the interior is less developed. This is something that doesn't go away with the third front. They, this, this problem gets downplayed in the eighties and then for most of the nineties, but then the late 1990s, the party becomes concerned about this again. Uh, and there, there's, there's, there's the uh, open up the West campaign and that third front projects that were there before get upgraded or get amplified, get built up more. And so that these the, the, these the places, a lot of the third front projects, uh, the big ones that survive, they become magnets for new resources uh, for, for later campaigns to develop the interior. This also ha has happened more recently with the Belt and Road Initiative and that things that were built during the third front and either still exist there. So big mines, big, uh, big factories that, that, that they didn't, they didn't go bankrupt. They're still there. And then also what happened in, in some cases is that you had, uh, we'll say, um, an airplane factory that was scattered all over Guizhou uh, for military reasons. 
what happens in the 80s is that this stuff is brought into the capital city. So it's in, in Guayang. If you go around Guayang, you'll see these, these airplane, these big airplane companies there and aerospace companies. And these are remnants of the third front. That's, that's why these things are there. Uh, and they, they get layered on later on with, uh, with the, uh, with, with these other campaigns to try to develop the interior. Now, uh, just to, one last point on this is one of the big differences is that no longer is this just conceived as a way to develop China and make it more coherent and make it more interconnect, interconnected. It's also now with the Belt and Road Initiative conceived as a way to make it so that China's West doesn't have to rely on the sea anymore. It can be it can be hooked into Central Asia. It can be hooked into Southeast Southeast Asia, and so that the markets are no longer China's the continent economy is no longer just looking towards the coast like it did really for most of the reform period. Instead, it's looking west and looking towards creating uh, economic links with Central Asia, Southeast Asia, and South Asia. Yeah. Um... That's really interesting just now as you were talking about how obviously these projects have taken on new forms. And as I was reading, uh, nearing the end of your book, I was started to, this isn't something you write about in the book, um, but I started to think about what are the remnants, um, you know, that these, these schemes that, that didn't take on new forms. And um, obviously anybody who's traveled across, um, especially rural China, especially this region that, that you're speaking of, there's a lot of these kind of rem remnants of industrial development schemes. So that's something that I kept thinking about I was, as I was reading your book. But I wanted to return to, um, as just now as you were talking, the kind of the geopolitical game um, that, that, that was, you know, that was still going on to the final year, years of, the, of um, the Third Front campaign. And I really like how you concluded um, chapter five you, you write, um, quote, perhaps Beijing's defensive development, de developmental response to American and Soviet hostility was too much. But was it any more disproportionate than the United States and Soviet Union's military response to the perceived threat of nuclear war or to each other's activities in the third world? And this moves us perhaps to the epilogue of your book, um, The Demilitarization of Chinese Socialism where you really zoom in to consider the status of the Third Front in the wake of Sino-American encroachment um, and also kind of um, the regional development, as you just discussed, uh, described to us just now. But perhaps you could talk a bit more about, um, you could tell our listeners more about um, what happened to the Third Front, um, you know, what happened after um, um, Nixon's visit, for example, what happened um, with the wake of Sino-American reproachments? Yeah, so I mean, the big story is is really what the title of the epilogue is about. It's just the demilitarization of Chinese socialism. So the, the Third Front is a, a part of this, uh, but I think it's important to understand the larger context of it. And that Chinese socialism from the very beginning is militarized. It's partially about the Communist Party fighting off against the, the, the nationalists, so the KMT, but it's also about fighting off foreign imperialism. And this is something, just this militarization of what socialism means isn't just a Chinese phenomenon. You can see this in the Soviet Union and the other, and it's, uh, the, the other socialist states as well, is that they're, they're in peril, they're under in threat uh, from, from outside forces is the way that they perceive themselves uh, and, and they are under threat as well. What, this is something in the Chinese case that lasts really from the 1920s into the 1970s. But what I argue happens in the, the end, in the, with, with, especially with Nixon's visit, is that 
you start to get a process of demilitarization. And that what's building Chinese socialism or the China's, China's future as a socialist state is no longer going to be conceived as that China's at war with the world. It's at war with the capitalist world, at war with imperialism. Instead, China is going to integrate with the world. China is going to benefit from the world. It's going to connect to capitalist markets. It's going to bring in resources from the outside world. And so th there's, this there's this process of just the internal versus external relationship that it takes a while for this to occur over the course of the 70s, but this shift occurs where China no longer conceives war and defending itself from the outside and defending itself from capitalist forces just integral to the socialist project. You also can see that this changes with the way that of, of science and, uh, and technology. No longer is it conceived that technical experts who have gotten a lot of education are somehow degrading the socialist project. In the Maoist period, it's quite the opposite. It's, it's a technical experts who are really divorced from the large mass of people who come up with stuff in their labs and come up with ideas uh, 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 not really engaged with the, the larger public. These are the people that get glorified. The, the most notorious case is really is the one-child policy, where it literally does come out of a guy who's who's in, in a missile factory. Who I think he's not necessarily third front, but he's definitely connected to the larger military-industrial complex. And so, and this is these people get the technocrats get glorified. So the idea of what science means, what technology means, uh, shifts as well. And then the other big shift is. Um, uh, uh, there's a couple other shifts. One, another one is just where is the, the weight of industry going to, to be? No longer does it need to be in the interior and hidden in these areas because China is no longer uh, under threat. Instead, it's going to be the coast, you know, the, the coastal strategy of the 1980s. And then the last piece of this really is just what does it mean to be a good Chinese person? So during the Maoist period, to be a good Chinese person means sacrificing your own individual interests, sacrificing especially your family, often more than just your individual interests, and sacrificing it for the revolution and dedicating yourself to the revolutionary project. And wherever the party wants you to go is where you're supposed to go. If you're supposed to go to the to go to Heilongjiang to be a sent down youth, that's where you go. If you're supposed to go to the third front and build a steel plant in the mountains of Sichuan, that's where you go and that's where you're supposed to dedicate yourself to. And you're also supposed to have very low-level consumption standards uh, because of this, this idea that production is first. It's, it's, it's really the, the, the Maoist the Republic is a producer's republic. You know, the American Republic is very much a consumer republic during the Cold War, but the Maoist Republic is very much a producer's republic, and the producers get prioritized. This shifts in the 80s, and that instead you get so that China, it, it, as part of its larger process of connecting up with the global capitalist world, it's also taking on the idea that what does it mean to be a modern subject? What does it mean to be a good person? It means to be a consumer. It means to raising standards of living. I mean, and, and this really becomes the motto of the party. And the way that you can see this is, is in a phrase that, that IR theorists uh, pay attention to more is just the idea that Deng Xiaoping comes up with in that what's the future for China? It's peace and development. Peace largely means it, it, it means different things, but one of the things it means is in, increasing with peace, you get consumerism, you get a consumer society, and then also we're going to focus more on development. We're not going to focus on uh, the, the security issues as much. Things have shifted more recently, but that's another story for a, for a later day. But it's, you still have this sort of consumer society, this, the shift away from producer ideals to, to consumer ideals. Yeah, definitely. 
I think it's just so fun. It's really fantastic how you've been able to, um, you know, in 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 your book and in this discussion, really pull th- these threads from so many from the number of different angles, but um, kind of looking at it from this from this wide scale, um, kind of top secret program um, that was initiated in the nineteen sixties to 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 how it how it radically changed um, policy politics um, and all of the above that you just mentioned. Um, and then very much framed um, the China that we that we know today. Um, I feel like I've already taken up so much of your time, um, and I wanted to conclude our conversation to talk a bit about what you're working on now and what you've been thinking about these days. So, if you could tell our listeners a bit more about your current projects, um, what have you been doing since Mao's Third Front was published? Yeah, so I have one project that's about the BRI, which talks a little bit about what we were talking about before. Uh, But the main focus really now is Three Gorges Dam. So my interest writ large is is capitalist and then anti-capitalist development in China in the the 20th century, or the long 20th century, if we take that into the the 21st century and a little bit back into the, the, uh, uh, the 19th century. And really... One of the biggest projects of doing this is, uh, is is the Three Gorges Dam. So that's what my second book project is about. There, what I want to do is zoom in, in on one specific project. So most people think of the Three Gorges Dam as something that started to come into existence in the late 20th century, because this is when it actually gets built. But it's something that the party, that the various parties that aspire to, various elites aspire to, all the way from the 1920s. And so this, the book, what I'm hoping it will tell the story of is having these big developmental visions where you're going to use technocrats, you're going to use industrial resources in order to radically transform the economy of whole regions, which is something that I see in the third front, but you can also see with the Three Gorges Dam. Initially, there's these big dreams, but they don't have the capacity to do it. And so they partner, uh, various governments in China partner with Americans, they partner with the Soviets, they partner with the Japanese. Uh, there's a whole bunch of different people that, that, that various governments in China try to work with to realize these projects. So what the book is going to chart is the, the moving from having these big developmental visions with the, the Three Gorges Dam and all the problems that they have of trying to realize this, but at the same time building up the capacity so that they eventually are able to carry out these uh, big, big – uh, China is able to carry out these big – uh, industrial projects. And so the book will end, at least I imagine, I'm not sure where exactly it will end, but it's going to end in Pakistan or it's going to end in uh, Latin America or it's going to end uh, in somewhere in Southeast Asia. Because what happens is that you don't just get the Three Gorges Dam, you get it so that the Three Gorges Dam group and then the Gujarabad group, which is for the Gujarabad Dam, which is right downstream, these are the, the major builders of dams around the world today. And so the, the book is going to end uh, with China having not just realized this capacity to carry out these big industrial fur projects domestically, but also carrying these projects out uh, throughout the world uh, at, you know, under the flagship of, of, of now of the, of, the, um, of the Belt and Road Initiative. Well, well, that sounds like such an intriguing project to be working on. And um, I imagine the listeners of this show really look forward to hearing about more about that as it unfolds. 
um, as do I, obviously. <laughs> but for now, um, Kaval Meskins, um, I'd like to thank you for putting time aside and for joining us today to talk about your work. And um, thank you to our listeners for tuning into the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast, the podcast channel on the New Books Network channel. Thank you, Kovel, and thank you for listening.